0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you so much for joining us here on the show, whether it is your first time or you've been uh, rocking with us for the past 160 episodes. Thank you so much for allowing me uh, to share our unique Asian American stories. Uh, Today's guest is somebody that I've been looking up to for a while and and looking forward to speaking with here on the podcast, and uh, that person is none other than Dr. Russell Jung. Uh, head of the movement Stop AAPI Hate, uh, an organization that we owe so much to for tracking the hate uh, incidents that have been happening uh, for much of our existence here, but particularly in the last couple of years, uh, and uh, has garnered media attention. And so, uh, I sit down with uh, Dr. Jung uh, remotely to talk about his journey. He is a fifth-generation Chinese American. How he got into the work and what he uh, remains hopeful about in the future, and so. Uh, this is episode nine of 10 in our series with stand with Asian Americans, as we tackle the big question of what now, as we think about what we have been through as a community, uh, going forward on a, uh, on a, on a show note on a personal note. Um, we're really excited this week to unveil new branding for the show that our amazing interns, Ian Lee and Tammy Sisson have been working on all summer. And so, um, if the podcast artwork looks a little bit different, um, or the logo on our Instagram looks a little bit different. Uh, these two wonderful men have been uh, just really doing a great job. And so looking forward to that. And a big shout out here on the show publicly to Jason Liu, uh, our first uh, logo designer and creator uh, for creating something for us uh, almost three years ago that has carried us for the first three years. And so, again, big thanks to our friends at SWA. Uh, big thanks and shout out to Ian and Tammy. And without further ado, here now here now is my conversation with Doctor Russell Jung. Hi, everybody! Welcome back to the Airs the Americans. Uh, I am so excited for this interview. Doctor Russell Jung has been on my radar, and I'm sure yours, um, whether through his personal name or the work that he's been doing through Stop API Hate for the better part of the last two years, and uh, has done really tremendous and important, and more importantly, necessary work in sharing our stories that often don't get told, um, particularly in. Uh, the category of crimes that are committed towards us and the discrimination and the hate that we have and, and continue to face. And so he is a through and through Bay Area guy, uh, San Francisco, down the peninsula up across the Bay and back to San Francisco, and we'll learn a little bit about his upbringing, his viewpoint in the world, uh, learn about the work, what drives him and uh, what we can learn about how we can make the most out of all that has happened to sustain and maintain the energy and the focus of activism in our community. So. Dr. Jung, welcome to The to Americans.
1: Thanks, Jerry. And hi, dear Asian-American fans and audience. Uh, you're all dear to me.
0: So. <laughs> uh, man, You know, we, we were just talking before we hit record. And um, I, I think for many, and Asian-Americans, obviously, we know because we experience it and we, and we study it and we participate in the community. We're so diverse. And yet often the narrative, true for many ethnic groups, including my Korean American population and many others, is this recency bias in the immigration story. But for your family, it's a little bit different because you're a fifth generation Chinese American. How was that experience for you? Uh, And you're born and raised in San Francisco. um, But tell us about the Jung family experience in America. Obviously, five generations is is a long time ago. But tell us about what you heard from, you know, and what you experienced and what you heard about, you know, your Chinese American experience.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So pre-65 Asian Americans are more working class. And I I really still cling to those working class roots um, and have that sense of being a real marginalized community, of being segregated, of being um, disenfranchised. And so I sort of come out of that background. My great, great grandparents came in the 1860s and settled in Monterey, California. And they lived there for four decades with a thriving business, raised families, but they were burnt out with the entire village. So back then, over 200 Chinese villages, not just individuals, villages were dispossessed wholesale by white mob wow. violence. And so my family is just one of the families that, that lost everything um, due to racism. And so my grandparents then had to move to San Francisco to Chinatown for safety. And it took two generations before my family could become property owners again. Um, My father grew up in Chinatown. So even though he was third generation, he still had that real sort of ethnic enclave experience. You know, everybody grew up in Chinatown said they could never leave or else they would get beaten up. um, You know, and they lived in what we call institutionally complete neighborhoods. That because we were so segregated, from cradle to grave, we had separate ethnic institutions. So you would be born in Chinatown at the Chinese hospital, go to Chinese schools, um, play sports in Chinese leagues, go to churches and Chinese churches. You know, use phones on the Chinese phone service. Your professional services would be, you know, your dentist, your attorneys would be all in Chinatown and Chinese, and then you would go to a Chinese mortuary. So the, the community was so segregated that they had to. Create all these institutions within that neighborhood because you couldn't leave it, and there's no, you know, you wouldn't get access to services outside of Chinatown. So while I was growing up, my family continued to go to Chinatown. Now again, now I'm fourth, fifth generation, but still really connected to Chinatown. Going there for to get my glasses every year, you know, going there to um, for youth groups, and so um, it's a really Different perspective on like post 65 kids who grew up in suburbs and have a model minority experience. I'm more used to the, I don't know, we're like Chinatown people who um, don't see ourselves in mainstream society. That's how I grew up.
0: I think there's so much there, Russell, because I think the, for those of us who have the privilege of having only immigrated here in the last generation or two and can safely exist in cities or even just physically outside of these enclaves many people fail to realize that these ethnic towns were necessary for survival Mm -hmm. not that we wanted that we chose of course there was you know uh benefits and community right like for many, it was actually the only place they could thrive, right? Not just because of language or culture, like actual physical safety. And that's something I don't think many of us think about. And and as we see, particularly through the pandemic, the uh, the evolution perhaps, or sort of the, the changes with all these cultural towns, not just only Chinatowns, but across the country, how our unique neighborhoods have been economically impacted more so than everybody else. And many of the young people leave and don't come back. And there's all these storylines through, in particular Chinatowns in America that I think are um, not taught because no history books cover this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so foremost, I wanted to say thank you for sharing that because I, I don't think we actually, many of us, and, and myself still, even though you know, I do my part to try to learn, we don't really understand what it meant to be Asian here 50 years ago you know, 70 years ago, right? Because it doesn't compute. It's it's still so, you know, um, the, the largest mass lynching happened in LA's Chinatown. People don't think about that. People don't know about that, right? And, and you talked about entire towns being burned and stories that we hear of Chinatowns and na- entire neighborhoods being burned in Seattle. We don't learn about these things. And so part of that, I think, is through storytelling so that people are... People's interests are piqued enough so they go digging on their own yeah uh, to learn more about because there are museums dedicated to our stories there are books written by our community members to share these stories um, how do you think your perspective in that was different because you are born and raised in Chinatown even though you've stayed largely within the Bay Area, you went to the finest institutions you teach you now have the ability and then have the experience of traveling the world to share your work and to learn with each other. And um, your world has gotten bigger, even though you're still standing on the foundation and the experiences of your ancestors. And and especially in that Chinatown Chicago or uh, San Francisco Chinatown experience. Um, what did you dream of when you were growing up and what were you taught to dream about?
1: Yeah. Well, I didn't really grow up in China. So my father was able to, because of the GI bill, able
0: to go to college.
1: And he was, again, This really shows the the impact of public policy. And those who were able to benefit from the GI Bill were able to go to college, this is in the 40s and 50s, and then um, get good loans, right? And so my father was able to buy a middle-class house in a nice neighborhood. His siblings, who had the same genetic background, the same neighborhood upbringing, the same schooling, who didn't get the GI Bill, they just Got working class jobs that you mm. would get as a Chinatown kid, and so my family were able to go to good schools and then you know, we were able to go to UCs and Stanford. Of course my cousins did well, but again they're they're just sort of like government workers or uh, you know pretty um, regular jobs and so that really gave my family my immediate family an, uh, a boost up. And so multiply that million times over, whites really benefited from the GI Bill, whereas right. Blacks weren't able to access it and remained in poverty. So I understand that my family, even though I come, my, my parents came from very working class backgrounds in poverty, I grew up more middle class um, and I had all this privilege. And I think a lot of Asian Americans then have to recognize, yeah, we're a minority and we face racism but we often have class privileges, right? So we both have advantages and disadvantages. And so for me, I think I've really um, benefited from a lot of opportunities, but I always felt like I've been given these privileges to give back, That especially because I'm the youngest kid. I don't have to take care of my parents. I should be responsible for the broader community. And so to this day, you know, I still live now in a low-income community in Oakland. I've identified with refugees and i hang out with unhoused people because i want to maintain that solidarity of people on the margins because i think that's who needs justice i think that's how we learn how to be compassionate and and that's how i wanted to raise my kids and so my kids grew up in a
0: inner city context too (laughs) what was what was your um world of exposure or sort of the 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 Boundaryless bounds of what you wanted to do professionally. Right, right.
1: Um, well, you know, growing up, so I grew up in the '70s, and so you know, there's sports, and so I like baseball and basketball. So you know, kids who like sports aspire to be athletes, but I couldn't because I was, you know, not athletic. Um, <laughs> Astronauts, you know, we got to the moon back then, and so people wanted to be astronauts. But you know, after all, I didn't really like science, and I really like learned to like writing and being um, doing skits. And so I think if I grew up today, I would really love to do TikTok, YouTube. <laughs> I'd be a content creator. But because I didn't have that opportunity, and because I didn't have any role models as writers back then, I just. Uh, I, I just flounder. i've been floundering all my life because i didn't have any role models i've been stereotyped as being non-writing and so um yeah so those who can't do anything teach and i became a professor
0: i want i i would say russell uh never too late to <laughs> spark your uh tiktok career um <laughs> oh, yeah i, I think there is a, a wealth of opportunity for you in, in that world for just for anybody right because i think it's fun and um it's this generation's definition of self-expression, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to, uh, even culturally, the things that we were expected to do versus the opportunities that we have now, I really relish it. Because even just with this platform, right? Like I didn't need to ask anybody's permission to anything, right? And and so in, in the, you know, um, I mean, you come from academia, which is a very heavily guarded permission-based ecosystem, right? People need to accept you. People need to take you in. They need to give you a job. And um, people need to give you worthiness or credit you with the opportunity to do anything. But again, institutions that gatekeep and institutions that allow certain people through and not others end up in a world like ours, at least a country like ours, where there's unequal outcomes because of unequal opportunity. You know, you mentioned, and and for folks who are not familiar, you mentioned 1965, and maybe some folks are familiar with that uh, important year as far as what it meant for our Asian American community. But what, what is significant about that year, and, and how did that change what Asian America looks like here in this country?
1: Before 1965, Asian Americans were excluded from the United States. We were considered aliens and eligible for citizenship, and immigration policies actually barred Asians from coming. The 1965 Immigration Act opened up doors to Asia, and that's when a lot more immigrants from Asia came. Um, but post-65 immigration policies became increasingly stringent, and you had to have certain meritocratic um, qualities, characteristics. So increasingly, the US only admits those who are educated, those who come with professional backgrounds or with you know, capital. And so that's created the Asian-American model minority class, that um, people who do come post-65 are often educated professionals with capital, and it's selective immigration that's led to um, Asian-Americans being able to bypass, you know, coming in as working class immigrants, entering into Chinatowns the towns and going straight to suburbs. So I think the pre-65 and post-65 differences between um, the Asian-American community is, is one of the, the points of diversity.
0: And obviously that increased the number of people that are here. Our, our population continues to grow. And according to Pew and other research centers, you know, we're gonna continue to grow both organically here, uh, through you know, families growing, but also through continued migration patterns. And I, I think, you know, from your perspective, how does what are the challenges in continuing to study and even advocate for a community whose identity refreshes itself, right? So it's not like there was one wave of migration for Korean Americans or Chinese Americans, let's say, and for you your peers in the fifth generation set, Mm -hmm. you know, you categorically or on a census form, whatever, you get tagged the same as me, right? Like who's, um, you know, I was born in Korea, came here when I was eight. Like it's very challenging when we think about the diversity of Asian Americans, we often think about ethnicity, but generations also see themselves differently. The way that language and culture is passed down, adding more complexity mixed race families are becoming more and more common in our community and so what a korean american kid or a vietnamese american woman might look like in 50 years is very different than what we would consider that today um from somebody who studies the community and and talks on the community and is very engaged what are some challenges that you see that you have seen in your work in the evolution of what we look like
1: yeah you know um it's, it's really easy to recognize the increasing diversity in the Asian-American community by generation, by ethnicity, by class, by religion, um, by language. And so that's one of our hallmarks. But the current surge of anti-Asian racism is what is bringing us together. And of those who report to stop AAPI Hate, our website reporting center, are non-Chinese, even though China is blamed for COVID-19. So you could be Filipino, who looks to me really different from a Chinese person, but other Americans can't tell the difference between us and yell at this Filipino, go back to China, you effing chink. And the Filipino goes, I'm Filipino, right? It's it's the racialization, the lumping together of us as all being similar uh, um, or we're indistinguishable. That's our common experience is we may be diverse in culture, but we are similar in how we're being treated in the United States currently and in the past. In the past, we've been excluded officially and even today. um, We're being excluded either as refugees, H-1B visas holders, um, immigrants, were still seen as threats to the United States who don't really belong. So even though there's diversity within the Asian American community, I think what we hold in common is our common racialization, that others see us as similar, that others treat us similarly, and that similar treatment is one of exclusion, of one of invisibility, is one of um, being viewed as a threat. So um Today, more than ever, I think Asian-Americans are recognizing, I thought I could fit in here, but I really don't fully belong. And actually, in the latest um, launch poll, Asian-Americans are the racial group who feel like they are least accepted in the U.S. We're the racial group that has the least sense of belonging compared to Blacks who face so much racism, compared to Latinos who are new. Even though Asians have higher class backgrounds, we still don't feel like we fit in here. And I think that's a common experience that holds
0: us together. Speaking of belonging, um, there's also a lot of mixed thoughts and opinions within the Asian American community about belonging. You know, here here you and I are a Chinese and a Korean man, two men talking, and often guys who look like me and you dominate the narrative of what it means to be Asian American, even Mm -hmm. though we make up a very small percentage of looking at both gender and ethnicity. And many conversations with Asian American friends, particularly South and Southeast Asian, who often wonder or just question, like, do I belong? And, you know, do I have a seat at the table when it comes to talking about Asian American issues? And geographically, we're not even talking, you know, we haven't even introduced Central Asia or West Asia and technically people who live on the continent but don't identify. And it seems as though, and even the origins of the term Asian American, you know, on your campus that was coined, uh, you know, uh, decades ago, it almost seems this new identity or this newfound identity for many called Asian American it is one of necessary survival and this cohesion that we need to collect our voices so that we can have a seat at the table collectively. What can we do better? What are some of the challenges you see now and what can we collectively do better so that all Asian Americans feel like they have a seat at the table, that their stories are prioritized, and that they themselves are not being gaslit within our own communities by saying, hey, it's bad enough that we don't feel like we belong in America, but even within when we have these you know, events and marches and things like that, how do we make sure that we all feel like we belong?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I know a lot of groups under the Asian American umbrella feel excluded, invisibilized. Smaller groups feel tokenized. If we add Pacific Islanders to our grouping, then they feel really marginalized. But I think actually that Especially Asian American political activists, we're actually pretty attuned to those on the margins. We're because we've been so excluded. I think we have a higher sense of bringing in people and being more inclusive. So we at Stop API Hate, for example, we we've really had listening sessions with the Pacific Islander community and want to uplift their issues. We're, we're working with the South Asian community and um, doing. A report with the Sikh community for um, having a commemoration of the Oak Creek massacres from 10 years ago, we recognize that um, fighting hate looks different to Southeast Asians than to East Asians. You could see how also we're more inclusive because Asian Americans more than any other racial group really push for racial solidarity. If you go to any group, and we talk talking about anti-Asian hate and they go, yeah, but what about African-Americans, right? We're always, well, I not are well, not always, but I think we're also very outward looking to make sure that we don't overset our bounds. First of all, we often feel, we play the oppression Olympics because we often come from shame based cultures and we're always comparing and looking at other groups saying, well, we don't have it as bad as Latinos. We don't have it as bad. And so actually in, um, Diane Fugino's book, new book on Asian American activisms, they say one of the hallmarks and distinctives of Asian American activism is our connection to other racial groups and our fighting for racial solidarity. So the whole identity of being Asian American is not just for um, our sense of identity, but are also included our sense of solidarity with the third world. So those who adopted the Asian-American political identity in the past, and I think even today, maintain a strong sense of ethnic identity, racial identity, and then racial solidarity with other communities of color. So Asian-Americans, um, again, in this recent survey, were more likely to identify as people of color than they identify with white people.
0: That's, I mean, I think that's a present and, and future challenge, right? Um, <laughs> And even part of your organization's name, API, and what we used to call APAM, and now it's AANHPI, you know, we keep adding (laughs) letters. Um, It's this sort of intention behind inclusivity, right? If you're not going to amplify the NHPI part of your community, then what is the point of having those letters, right? And I think even when we were at the White House, and that's such a still a weird thing to say... You know, we looked out around the room and they were generally, but the majority were fellow Asian Americans, even though they lumped the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities together in one celebration. I looked around the room and did not see too many uh, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders and their stories were not the ones that were being told. And and so I, I think it's also, you know, another dimension of that and their introduction to America very differently. Like many of us came here for them. America came to them. Uh, they may not be dealing with a lot of the hate that has been, you know, rooted in Sinophobia, or at least blaming China for the COVID virus the last two plus years. Like, how do we, how do you view, and, and the organization and, you know, Manju and the others that you work with, the inclusivity of the totality of the community, especially in data form, when it's really hard to... um Always disaggregate the data to the point that we can tell specific narratives,
1: yeah, we, we, we just have to be intentional about it, so we just had a recent forum in the Bay Area um, with congress and at the forefront and center, presenting from the community were two Pacific Islanders and some run from the Council of Arab and Islamic relations, right and so in our in our convening, we brought in a Muslim and two Pacific Islanders to speak first, and so that was clearly. Intentional to, um, to uplift these groups' concerns, and then connect the dots that the same type of government or institutional racism that they face is similar to the other types of institutional racism that East Asians face. So we just have to be intention- intentional. We mm-hmm. at Stop API Hate again are trying to are going to start is- issuing reports attending to the different forms of hate. We're going to look especially at um, how do non English people speaking people report to stop APRP as compared to English speaking. We, we highlighted the concerns of LGBTQ already. So for us, um, if you want to make sure that groups aren't marginalized and tokenized, then what you do is intentionally uplift those you think are invisible. I hate the term invisible because, you know, the sense of visibility is invisible to whom, right? Maybe to mainstream society. We're always taking this perspective of mainstream society sees us as invisible but, right? you know or like we're we're voiceless like
0: oh voiceless stuff. but I, I mean that's i mean that the perspective i think is um who, who's, whose perspective are we assuming right and so when media outlets say like you know parents are concerned about the curriculum well, what parents right like why, why don't we call out the specific type of parents when it's assumed to be mainstream or white in this country But when a group of black or Asian parents have a complaint, we always get the adjective thrown into, you know, almost like, well, they're not normal parents. And so I I think it's really interesting the way that we even see ourselves in in this. Um, You do the work of collecting the stories of hate crime victims and the uh, more marginalized members of our community. And, And again, you know, I was introduced to you through your work the last couple of years that have been highly visible in our community and outside the community. Obviously, you didn't wake up one day in March of 2020 and said, you know what I should start doing. You've been doing this work for a very long time. How did you get into the studying of us? Um, Because your day job still is professor of Asian American studies at San Francisco State. And, And so this is studying the community is something that you feel very passionate about, and something that you were doing long before COVID and the pandemic. What drives you to study and share the stories of us, particularly in an academic institution?
1: What drives me to tell the story of Asian Americans? um, I guess first and foremost, it's to tell my own story, right? And to tell, like I said, I wanted to write, but I didn't have any role models to become a creative writer. And I believe our stories are worth telling. Our stories are worth including and will benefit broader America. There's so much of our value systems of our experiences that even our understandings of justice, for example, I think are really distinct and can um, teach America how to mm. think about the common good over one's individual rights. So in America, we think about rights often as right um, justice as our defending our rights. But I think Asians have a real sense of collective justice and the common good. So I wanted to tell that story um, and to center the Asian-American experience. So I, I know as a sociologist, theories don't apply to us because they take, you know, a Eurocentric white norm. And so if you center the Asian-American experience, you understand religion differently. You understand justice differently. You understand so many ideas and um, societal issues differently. And so I just wanted to provide that alternative you know, perspective. And um, so that's what drives me to tell the story is that by offering a, a distinctly Asian American perspective, we add to the American understanding of a lot of social issues.
0: Take us through the conversations that happened within the organization with your, with your partners at Stop API Hate in the wake of the early parts of 2000. What led to you wanting to actually be more visible and collect data. And I think it's wonderful what you started, Um, but but take us through sort of the the things that led to what we now know as a stop API hate movement. Mm
1: -hmm. So I teach public policy and I know that data is really important in order to get your issue on politician's agenda. Data is important to policymakers to justify any action. You know, when I, teach about Japanese American incarceration they did the wartime commission to go across the nation to get gather stories of how Japanese Americans were um, injured and that data collection both of stories and numbers convinced government you know that once you have it printed and an official government document then government has legitimacy to act on it so to make any issue legitimate make any issue at the forefront of a policymaker's concerns, you need to demonstrate that your community has a real issue. So if we go around complaining, oh, we're the model minority, oh, you need to disaggregate or do that. you know, like that, that's so abstract. But if you say we've been receiving a hundred incidents a week and they're nationwide and we don't even know how they heard about stop API hate, that's, that's, That's more powerful, that's evidence. When we say there's a stark increase, a growing trend in racism, then policymakers pay attention. So we knew that we had to document the racism. I documented it by looking at news accounts, that secondary hand um, data. And with that data, we went to our legislator and said, look at all this data. You guys got to start collecting more real firsthand data. Our government said they didn't have the capacity so we created our own website. And we started gathering the data. So we've issued over 20 reports because we know the importance of documenting having written, you know, charts. And so policymakers, um, we know, mainstream media, journalists, all have used our data to justify and to demonstrate and to put in context individual stories of racism.
0: And what was the... Primary goal then the and ha- has that evolved?
1: Uh, no, we collected the data because we wanted to know why it was happening, the racism, to whom it was being impacted, um, where it was happening. And so we gathered the data to create policy interventions. And that's what we're doing now at Stop API. We're pivoting from just collecting the data, which we'll continue to do, but coming up with solutions given what the data says. So, for example, We understand one out of three parents say that Asian kids are bullied in school, so we're pushing for ethnic studies. We know that most two-thirds of the cases to stop API hate aren't crimes, but issues of harassment. So we have three bills in California to address street harassment. Given our data, we're coming up with policy solutions that we think are more effective, more comprehensive, and more preventative, because we can pinpoint where the racism occurs, We know why it occurs. It's the rhetoric about China. And so we're we're trying to get at the roots of racism. So our data informs us, here's the problem. Here's the source of the problem. And then the data says, well, then how do we address those roots? It sort of makes sense, right? Rather than just like, oh, let's give old people whistles when old people (laughs) can't even blow. That'll protect them, you know. But how do you...
0: How do you balance, though, right? So here's, I think, many, I've had many conversations with friends across a variety of, you know, a, a vast spectrum of of thoughts and backgrounds. And, you know, we know that it's a problem. Data is an extremely important tool. How does that, how does the data collection and the stories that we want to tell from a policy-changing narrative impact either positively or as, as a consequence negatively in sort of, the way that this our, our stories get told under a criminal justice narrative, yeah. um, there there's um, there are many people who want to use this data to blame a particular group of people to say, hey, it's all those guys, or where you live in the Bay Area. Most recently, the recall of the district attorney, you know, a lot of that was driven by the Asian American community, who felt, uh, not all, but many felt that there were. Many incidents that could have been avoided had they been a little bit more punitive in nature. How do you balance that as somebody who is the data collector and sort of the storyteller of how these incidents are happening?
1: Yeah. So beyond collecting the data, controlling and creating the the narrative is really important. So we've always called the issue hate incidents, not hate crimes. So if you think of the issue of racism as hate crimes, then the solution is hate crime enforcement and more policing. If you understand the issues, is hate incidents and institutional racism, then the solution is let's change the institutions that lead to interpersonal racism. Right? Mm. Why are so pe- Why are so many kids bullying other Asian kids? Why do so many Asian women get catcalled on the streets? We gotta not just Address every individual perpetrator, but we have to change the institutions that lead these people and socialize these people to be racist. So for us, it's a matter of framing the narrative. And so that's why we use the language Mm. of hate incidents. That's why we um, always talk about structural and institutional racism that feeds interpersonal racism. We talk about, um, we're going to the um, Asian American Journalists Association this week because we see how often the headlines talk about the issue as hate crimes. We Mm -hmm. see how China is being billed as America's existential threat. So it's okay to have these perspectives, but how you frame it can be really different. So, for example, we're saying, instead of criticizing China, which then leads to the bashing of China, leads to the bashing of Chinese people, we encourage people, it's okay to criticize CCP's policies, but don't attack the nation. Don't attack the people. Don't attack the culture. Right? You gotta distinguish the policies from the people. And um, again, in broader America, they tend to conflate anything Chinese, and that's why we're seeing so much anti-Asian hate. Is because people attack China's policies, but then spread that hate to, um, communities. So. Like you said, controlling the narrative is really important, and we at Stop API Hate are really trying to do so mm. by framing it differently. And we've always called for civil rights expansions rather right. than more policing.
0: Sure, I, I appreciate that, um, and you know, I, I I think it's such a tough topic to talk about, right? Because I think there is the urgency of people who want to feel safe, families of victims who have been injured or even murdered, to say like, hey, you know, maybe we don't have the patience for policy to change, right? Because we're scared to go outside today it is i think just like i, I think it's a uh a reflection of the diversity of our community to also recognize that people see the same situations from a multitude of ways and also have a diverse way of uh, almost an infinite way of what they think is the right way or the prioritized way of tackling that
1: yeah yeah another example of narrative change is this whole notion of community safety so if you think about community safety, some people think, oh, that, that means more policing, right? But that's clearly a, a not very helpful solution because there's never going to be enough police to be around for every hate incident. There's never going to be enough police. So we have to reconceive of community safety to be beyond policing to neighborhood well-being where neighborhoods, where neighbors watch out for each other, where there's what we call safe zones where Elders know where they can run to, into a store or to call out, right? Where neighborhood safety involves people are watching out for each other, and they, when they're walking around. So that narrative change, a reconceptualization of what community safety means, is really critical. So it's it's a difficult task, but we at SAP are really thinking about what are the key narratives that we need to change that will then help lead to greater safety that will lead to civil rights expansions of protections that will lead to an education that's not that doesn't omit our communities.
0: We're a little bit past the two year mark of the the start of COVID. Um for many of us who have our eyes and ears to the community know that these attacks are still happening, though mainstream media may not cover it in such frequency. You mentioned our friends, our journalist friends are here in LA for a big convention and you know, there's a lot of dialogue about sort of what is next, right? How do we keep up the attention? How do we keep the focus on advocating for marginalized members of our community, continuing to fund projects like yours and, and other organizations who are doing good work in the midst of just overall priorities in our country and around the world that are also taking up our energy, our money, our resources. How do you plan on and and what are some words of advice for community members to sustain the energy for what may what some may have thought was a sprint, but it is actually a marathon, but that may actually never end?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's I'll give you another metaphor. Um, It's like, you know, the eye of Sauron is looking around. and The eye of Sauron and anti-Asian hate was the issue of the moment but then it'll shift to Latinos separated at the borders. It'll shift to African-Americans and police profiling. And so it'll shift again. And so we know that as the eye of Sauron moves around, we're gonna be out of the limelight. So our focus at Stop the API heat is not to get media attention because we know that's momentary and fleeting. We know that instead of focusing on being in the eye of Sauron, we need, first of all, to continue to call for our help from elves and, dwarves and things like that to build allies. But then what we're trying to do is we know we're going to be out of the media's attention, but what we need to do is institutionalize policies that help Asian Americans now. We have a small window now, so let's enter and expand that window that once we get policies for Asian American studies. Once we get policies for the API equity budget bill, then we could get funded again and again in future years. Then we could be a model for other states. If we have Asian American studies in Illinois, then we could get it in Virginia. So our approach is we have the window, let's enter and get institutionalized as a community that needs that has concerns that need to be addressed. Once we're established, once we have policies, it's harder to get rid of those policies, right? They're more long-lasting. And so for us, the, the focus is we have to institutionalize the Asian-American movement. We've got to build capacity of organizations on the ground. And then we've got to get policies written and then codified and then implemented. So that will last. Policies last. Laws last. Mm. Um, they. Policies and laws affect large swaths of people. So again, rather than again trying to protect every individual Asian elder walking around, we could create laws that will benefit all elders. So um, that's our approach: is that Mm. given the window, we gotta enter and you know the systems to try to change the systems. We gotta get to corporate. CEOs to gain their attention to, to continue to regularly give to Asians. We got to get into mainstream media to, to say um, you got to cover our news stories. So mm-hmm. we're we're trying to take advantage of the window, knowing that it's going to shut pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, and, and I think you know um, it's got to be any and all, right? Like I, I think there's or you know, community members who uh, still are you know volunteering to walk people from A to Z. Right, yeah, like, or patrol uh-huh. the streets. I, that's necessary because I think there's, you know, fear of particularly my generation, like worrying about our parents and our grandparents, and you know, can they, should they, and you know, there's even, uh, you know, robberies in parking lots of suburban malls, and you know, like it's, though we can't be everywhere, I, I think there's either actual benefit or at least perceived benefit of psychological safety of knowing that some of those programs exist. I, and again, I, I think the big challenge is this country's so damn big, our community is so damn big, mm-hmm. and different communities need different help. I mean, intergenerationally, language, culture, ethnicity, religion, all these things make problem solving a bigger challenge and the single narrative of Asian Americans blank. Right. Yeah, and I think that's, right. again, when the media says like, you know, they, they live in headline land and they like to aggregate the data and have a, you know, a punchy headline, a lot of it gets erased, right? Because we get swept into this one headline. And so I'm a big fan of disaggregated data as as a data nerd and a storytelling nerd. I love the work that you're doing because I think when you look into it beyond the headlines of X number of incidents, which is shock value, but also you shouldn't stop there. That should actually encourage you and motivate you to go look at the actual data and what people are experiencing. Understand that this is self-reported data. So think about all the stories that are not being told. Think about all the stories that are being left out and you know that should continue because I think it's easy to feel defeatist in moments like this where we've done so much, but bad things keep happening. Uh, and I want to share with our listeners too, you have to have hope and you have to work at it because I don't see any other alternative uh, to give up and saying, well, that's the price of living in America as an immigrant, you know, like what are we modeling for our children and our grandchildren to say, Hey, our ancestors went through all that stuff that you talked about earlier. Russell, you know, um, we need to do that for them because others have done it for us. And, you know, I, I think we have more access to decision makers and more privilege and more wealth, collectively speaking, in this country than ever before. And if we can, you know, align some of the values or, you know, put some resources together, I think it's going to be a long battle ahead, but uh, grateful for folks like you and uh, your team over at Sabe APA, hate doing the work um, of, of all that. Um, a- a- as we wrap, you know, our show's called Dear Asian Americans. The entire project, the entire business is dedicated to my daughter and her children as a letter, a love letter to us, from us, and trying to unearth and amplify stories that may never get told um, outside the context of our community. And so uh, any advice, final thoughts, moments of inspiration? I know you have children or, you know, a younger version of Russell, perhaps. If you could share your final thoughts in the form of a letter and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans.
1: Dear Asian Americans, I know this is a really difficult period for all of us, that we're going through a period of collective racial trauma, that younger people especially have anxieties and depressions. When you think about the future, do we belong in the United States? Look how polarized the United States is and how precarious the state of democracy is. When you think about our environment and the climate crisis, there's a lot of reasons for despair. And And I want you to know that your parents and your grandparents love you so much. And I'm making it my responsibility to leave a legacy, to leave um, the environment better for you. And I want to give you some signs of hope. You know, we talked about interpersonal racism and institutional racism, and both need to be addressed. And we at Stop AOP, because we're limited, are going to focus on changing the institutions that have been leading to racism. So we're really pushing to change what you get learning in schools, right? It's racist that you don't learn about Asians, but you only learn about white people. The omission of Asians is structural racism. But currently 19 states have passed or are pending legislation for Asian American narratives to be in the school. That's remarkable. That's all occurred in the last year because Asian-Americans have stood up, gone to their legislator and said, we need Asian-American stories, Asian-American history in the classroom. So so know that we can make change. We have three bills in California. You know, kids get bullied, get called names. That's wrong. That's the norm. But it shouldn't be. So we are actually having three bills, and some of them are authored by Black and Latino legislators in multi-racial solidarity to stop this type of harassment, this type of bullying. And it's gaining bipartisan support, so know that we can make change. And we're pushing at Stop API Hate for more funding to stop anti-Asian hate, to, for governments to pay attention to the disparities that Asians face. So in California, we just got $165 million last year. New York passed the similar bill, so did Massachusetts. We're now making institutional change, and it's for you so that you can go to schools where you can learn about your history, so that you can walk the streets and feel more safe, so that you can have community organizations that are funded and develop leadership to to change how we um, do health, how we do mental health. So, dear Asian Americans, know that your parents are fighting for your future and want to leave you a legacy that our immigrant ancestors wanted for us. We love you, daddy and mommy.
0: Thank you, Russell. Um, and, and I want to thank you. Um, again, this is so ridiculous. We can just talk about this casually, but we met at the White House in the lawn and just <laughs> hanging out amongst other badass Asian-Americans. And And you were so open to coming on the show and sharing your story. And I, I am very, very grateful. I reference your work and a lot of my work when I talk to companies and schools about our experiences and why companies, schools, Asian-Americans, and all of us need to share our stories in a much more nuanced and you know, contextually resonant way rather than just two East Asian guys talking about their experiences and saying, hey, let's check the box and we did something for the Asians. So continue the work. I know it's hard. I know it's long. Um, But, you know, really respect what you're doing. And, you know, I, too, am very excited as as a father of two and somebody in this space that we're finally seeing some traction in institutionalizing the teaching of our history, because Asian American history is American history. And we, too, uh, deserve to have our stories told in the correct way uh, and not to have that erased. And so Um, stopaapihate.org is where you can read the report, the full versions of the many reports that Russell and his team produce and learn more about his work, find out ways that you can contribute uh, both through your time, energy, effort, and money to continue the work that they do. And so thank you so much for making time. This has been such a joy and uh, continued safety uh, to you. I too am headed to AAJ at some point this week. So hopefully I'll see you again in person and uh, best wishes to all of your future work and your uh, projects. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jared. Big shout out to Dr. Jung for making time to share his story with us, um, and uh, I hope that motivates all of us to continue to pursue the work that is meaningful, to uh, report if we see something, uh, and to really advocate in in whatever way you see fit uh, for our community. Uh, we need everyone's voice. We need everybody's action, and all hands on deck. Um, as mentioned earlier. Uh, we're probably seeing a new logo here in the next couple of weeks or this week here on the Ears Americans. Americans uh, we're going to wrap here this at the end of the week with episode number 10 uh, of our partnership with Stan with Asian Americans, big shout out to Justin, Brian, Wendy, and uh, everybody else uh, over at team SWA. Uh, you can reach out to us on the show at the ears Americans on Instagram or hello at the You can find me at jerrywan.com or on Instagram at Jerry Thank you so much for tuning in and being a supporter of our show. If you love the show, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you listen to this show. And we deeply, deeply appreciate if you would share this show with a friend, a family member, or a colleague, or even with your organization. Signing off on episode 160, I am your host, Jerry Wan of Dears and Americans. Please stay healthy, safe, and happy.